Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. Here we are on, it happens that I'm doing this a day early, and so it's July the 4th, 2020, the 244th birthday of America. It's a wonderful day. It's it was hot today, and now it's cloudy and overcast, a little bit rainy, and but it's nice because we needed a break. We need a respite from the heat, and so we needed a respite from a whole lot of things. But we're not going to get one right away, it doesn't look like. So we'll just plow on and see what else 2020 has to bring for us. So today I've got three lessons in a psalm, just like always. The psalm is Psalm 45, verses 11 to 18. It's a a royal psalm. It's, um, Hear, O daughter, consider and listen closely. Forget your people and your father's house. The king will have pleasure in your beauty. He is your master, therefore do him honor. The people of Tyre are here with a gift. The rich among the people seek your favor. All glorious is the princess as she enters. Her gown is cloth of gold. In embroidered apparel, she is brought to the king. After her, the bridesmaids follow in procession. With joy and gladness, they are brought and enter into the palace of the king. In place of fathers, O king, you shall have sons. You shall make them princes over the earth. I will make your name to be remembered from one generation to another. Therefore, nations will praise you forever. So it's the marriage of a king and one being brought who is becoming a princess. And she is forgetting her people and her father's house because she will now be the wife of the king. So the first lesson that we have today is it's a bunch of mixed up stuff, frankly, from Genesis 24, and it's verses 34 to 38, and then skips to 42 to 49, and then skips to 58 to 67, and there are some reasons why it skips around a little bit like that. But what it is, is when Eliezer of Damascus, who would have been the heir of Abraham had he not first had Ishmael and then had Isaac... After Isaac is of age, after Sarah's death, after the binding of Isaac, he sends Eliezer of Damascus to go to his people, uh, Abraham does, to go see his people and get a wife for Isaac. And so Eliezer, who would have been the heir now, is on an errand to go find a wife for the one who is now the heir so that he might have children. Eliezer, it speaks highly of Eliezer, that he has persevered in this and has continued because he could have been bitter. He could have been upset by all this. But he goes, and he finds a wife. He goes and prays before he goes to the well, before he gets to the place of his master's home, and prays that God will send him a wife, send a woman, and that he'll know exactly who it is. He, he prays and asks very specifically for this woman. He prays that when he goes, that a woman will come and she will offer to give him a drink and also to give water for the camels also. And says, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed from a master's son. And then he says, behold, before I had finished speaking in my heart, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please, let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. 
And then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring in her nose, the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Nahor, the father of Bethuel, is Abraham's brother. And Milcah was the wife of their other dead brother, whom Nahor took to be his wife. And so the Lord has blessed both these families of Abraham and Nahor. And so he takes Rebekah. And the family asked, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And so they went. There's a lot more to the story than that. There's a lot more to this story than that. It's an interesting story. There are a lot of details in it. And we're going to get into it when we start this. Well, not when we start the series on Abraham. But as we go through the series on Abraham, we'll see more and more about this scene that makes it very interesting. This story that Eliezer tells, he tells twice, actually changes the details a little bit along the way. And it's an interesting change that he makes to those details. I'll just say right now that what he's emphasizing here when he tells the story to Bethuel and the family, when he tells the story to them, he emphasizes this. I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he's become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Did you hear the emphasis that Eliezer puts on there? He's a wealthy man. She could do a lot worse than marrying the son of this wealthy man whom God has greatly blessed and made him great. Because this one that she would marry is the only one. He's going to get everything. And so they go. And there's a lot more in the details of this. So Rebecca goes, and as they come and they get close to where Isaac is, he's dwelling in the Negev, and as they get close, Isaac lifts up his eyes and sees these camels coming. And Rebecca lifts up her eyes, and when she sees Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It's my master. So she took her veil and her covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So he told the story again, but we didn't get all the details there. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So there's this whole thing going on here about recognition. Eliezer prays, look, I don't want to have to work for this. Make this simple for me. Here's the test that I'm going to give you. Make it so simple that when I go and sit next to the well, that there will be a virgin who comes out, literally is the word he says, that, that he can ask this one simple question to. Give me a little water and give some to my camels also. And that's exactly what happened. But it had to be from among Abraham's people. And when he asked her, it was. 
So he didn't have to recognize Sarah by face. He didn't have to ask directions to where does the, the children of Nahor live. No, he, he said, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Lord to show me and to make this easy for me. He could have asked all kinds of questions about the, from the people in the land to find out how he could find the kinsmen of Abraham, but he didn't. Instead, he prayed to the Lord and said, show me this person, make this happen. He, he had faith, and it worked out exactly as he prayed. And so then, as he brings them back, he's learned some things we'll talk about later in the way that he tells this story, because he tells it first to Rebecca, and then he tells it to the family, and you're, you heard the part that he told the family. It's a little different. He emphasizes different things in those two stories. So he learned something. He saw something that made him change that story and tell it the way he did to them. It's all about what do you see? Who is it that's standing in front of me? And so he recognized that he needed a certain kind of a woman, a certain kind of woman that would, that would show the same thing that his master Abraham showed. And that is one simple Hebrew word, and that's hesed, kindness. That was the word that is most characteristic of Abraham all through that story is Abraham was a man of kindness. He did kindness to everybody that he came into contact with. Well, at least those that he didn't deceive. But he showed kindness always. Considered himself less than secondary to. His needs were less important than the needs of others. And so there's a reason Eliezer prays the prayer that he prays is, is that, that his assumption is that the one who will show Hesed, that characteristic of Abraham, will be from his family. So he prays a very specific prayer, but it's based in the knowledge of the character of his master. He's a servant. He's a slave in the household. But his master is a man of Hesed, a man who will show kindness to others. And so he looks for a woman with that same characteristic, and that's exactly what he finds when he meets Rebecca. And so he's thrilled about what has happened here. God made it easy. But he made it easy because Eliezer knew what he was looking for. He knew the characteristics of the one he served, and therefore he looked for one with the same characteristics who would be a wife for the son of Abraham, and he found her. And so we get this wonderful story of, of when they see one another from afar, and then they come together. And so, But there's something about seeing here in this whole passage. What does Eliezer see? But what's he looking for? Because that matters too. It's not just seeing things and recognizing it. It's, it's knowing what you're looking for. And there we come to the gospel lesson, which is, again, an incredibly short gospel lesson. And what's disappointing to me, but it's also infuriating to me, is what it leaves out, which is frequently what the Episcopal lectionary does. It leaves out things that are important, and it leaves them out for some very specific reasons. And that is it, it doesn't like what those verses had to say, and so it just skips over them. So what we have for the lesson is Matthew 11, chapter 
six, uh, chapter 11, 16 to 19, and then it skips over to verse 25. So Jesus is speaking to the crowd about who John is, because John has just sent his disciples, John's in prison, he's just sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus gives them an answer, and then he says great things about John, and says there's among, there's none who have been born among women has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And then he goes on to speak a little more about John. And then he begins to speak about not John, but the people. He says, what shall I compare this generation? Because John, this great one, has come, the one who's been prophesied, the Elijah that they're looking for. And he says, but what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. No matter what we did, you didn't do what we wanted you to do. We played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. And then it skips forward, the reading does, to at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So what he's saying is, is that, that these people, y'all, missed it. You didn't know what you were looking for. You expected, you prayed for, you every single year at your Passover Seder, you leave a place for Elijah and you long for the coming of Elijah because that's exactly what Malachi promised, that Elijah would come prior to the Messiah and that Elijah would come and reveal things. And he would restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers, and wonderful things would happen in preparation for coming of Messiah. John comes, and that's not what John did. But Jesus says, he is Elijah who is to come. You missed him. You were looking for something, and because you were so focused on what you were looking for, and he didn't do what you wanted him to do, and neither am I, you missed it. You didn't see what was right in front of you because you were looking for the wrong thing. John came to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. He didn't, his goal wasn't to make everything nice again. It was to make a people prepared for the coming of Messiah and the highway of righteousness that he would walk on and nothing crooked shall walk in it. John's job was to prepare a people for the coming of Messiah. But even John kind of missed Jesus. He sends these disciples here to ask Jesus, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus points back to Isaiah in answer to that question. And he says, I've done all these things, but he leaves out one thing when he answers that question. Jesus says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. There's one thing that he left out of that passage from Isaiah 61. 
he sets the prisoners free. So there's even a test for John. John's been given the promise that he would see Messiah come. He would baptize him. He would see the Spirit come and descend like a dove and remain on the one who is the Messiah. But what Jesus says here is, John didn't do the things you wanted him to do. And you said he has a demon. I'm not doing the things you want me to do. And you say I'm a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But what he's saying to John is, John, look at all the things that I've done. If I don't do the one thing you need, will your faith go away? It has to be based in faith. And so John's got a test while he's in prison going to die. And so what does John do, though? John still, even to the king, calls him to righteousness, points out his sin, and then he loses his head and he dies. Positive, John <clears throat> recovered his faith because of the strength in that man and the strength in the way that he died. He died with truth on his lips. Jesus tells them here, you're looking for the wrong thing. You're misunderstanding the evidence of your eyes. How often do we do that same thing? We look and we make an evaluation of what we see and we make it wrong. And so Jesus says that, that we've got to do what Samuel had to learn to do when he was told to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And he goes to Bethlehem, to Jesse's family, and he sees these good-looking boys, and he says, I'm going to anoint one of them to be king, and everyone that comes before him is a little better than the other. And he wants to anoint every single one of them, and God keeps saying, no, 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 no. You see like a man sees. You need to see like I see. You need to see the heart. We underestimate people. There are so many people in, in this world, people that I know well, who go about being underestimated all the time. Some of the most extraordinary people I know are the most overlooked people I know as well. It's hard to live that kind of a life, being underestimated and overlooked all the time. It's a difficult burden to bear. And Jesus comes and lifts those people up. He lifts them up in his kingdom. And he loves them. And he thinks they're truly extraordinary. And that's what we see all through the Gospels with his interactions with different people. He raises these people who are overlooked and undervalued. And he raises them up. They don't ever become great people, but they're great in the kingdom. When the woman washes Jesus' hair, she's a pro Jesus' feet with her hair, I mean, she's a prostitute. And Jesus says... She'll be remembered everywhere the gospel is preached. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her other than that she's a prostitute who comes to faith and loves Jesus enough that she breaks open the perfume that she has with her, the perfume that makes her attractive to men. And she pours it all over his feet and then lets down her hair and washes his feet with her hair and her tears. That woman is known all places the gospel is preached. The woman in Samaria at the well is a nobody. We don't know her name, but we do know that that woman 
was the first person to whom Jesus fully revealed himself and said that he was the Messiah. And through her, that entire village received salvation. We don't know the name of the blind man in John 9, but we know that Jesus, again, revealed himself to that blind man. All through the gospel are these people that we don't know their names. We don't know anything about them other than he's a blind man. She's a wicked woman who has had many husbands or she's a prostitute. But in the kingdom of heaven, these people are great. And I think that's one of the things that that we tend to overlook. And I think it may be a besetting sin of the church. And the reason I even mention that word besetting sin is, is that the the epistle is from Romans 7, 15 to 25, where Paul says, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. For if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he's not giving himself a pass by saying that. He's just saying, I observe something. I observe that in my spirit, I want to do the law. And, And that in itself is a recognition that the law is good. That word belongs to God. What what he's saying is, it's it's like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, when I see in the law, what I see of the law is it's good. It is that good that goes back to the tree in the garden. And it's what I want to do, but there's another law that lives in my body, and that is the law that desires something else, what we call original sin the sin that becomes part of our DNA when Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and they make sin now something real. It's something they take into themselves and therefore it's passed through our DNA to us. And so Paul says, I observe that, that that I want this thing that I see is good, but I don't have the ability to do that thing and I keep on sinning. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Again, that's Genesis kind of language. Sin is crouching at your door. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he has the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And what he's saying there is the same thing God said in Genesis 4 to Cain. Sin lies crouching over, crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must be the master of sin. And we've been given the Holy Spirit with which we can do that very thing. But Paul is a guy who misapprehended Jesus. He misapprehended Stephen. He was there giving his approval at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8. And then in Acts 9, he's headed out to persecute the church even worse. 
And on the way, he's struck by the bolt of light. He hears the voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? And he prays and says, who are you? And the voice from heaven, heretofore always only one voice, the voice of God, says, I am Jesus. And Paul knew that the Messiah he had longed for, had looked for all his life. Paul was a rabbinic student in the best rabbinic school. And he missed him. He got it wrong. And he was persecuting the church of the Messiah. What grace Paul received. That the story didn't end there. And Paul didn't underestimate anybody again after that. If you're listening to this podcast today, you have not misapprehended Jesus. You wouldn't be listening to this if you didn't know that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Him. You've been convicted of that truth. I want to open your eyes to everything else that's around you. Look for the sons and daughters of the king and look for them in the same way Eliezer of Damascus looked for the relative of Abraham. Know the characteristics of the master. And then you'll know the characteristics of his servants, the ones who belong to him. And I'm going to leave you with this reminder. And it's from C.S. Lewis's essay called The Weight of Glory. I want to open your eyes to the people around you, but at the same time, I want to open your eyes to who you are as well. If you've been overlooked, if you've been undervalued, if you've been underestimated all your life, if people don't even recognize you or see you, and yet you do extraordinary things for people all the time, but they just keep asking you to do these things, know this, he sees you, he knows you, he knows who you are, he knows your actions, he knows your deeds. He delights in you. So when I read this, I want you to hear it and I want you to think about other people in your life and I want you to to think about this for the rest of your life, literally, whenever you meet other people. But I want you to receive it for yourself as well. So here's what Lewis had to say about people. He said, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It's part of our work, part of our joy, to recognize those two things. And when we recognize it, to bring out the best. To pray for those on one side 
and to magnify, lift up, encourage, and comfort those on the other side. Remember, you are that person as well. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. You'll see a link below um, to the Facebook page where you can leave questions questions, comments, suggestions, uh, prayer requests, or any of those kinds of things. I'll also leave that quote in the description box below this episode. Thanks for being with me today. Again, happy 4th of July. Uh, May you be blessed and may America become exactly what her founders intended and wanted her to be in spite of all our flaws. Let us all work together and pray together that she might become that city on a hill.